Cesar Chavez has long been heralded for his personal practice of nonviolent resistance and struggles against social, racial, and labor injustices. Yet it seems that the works of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. have always overshadowed Chavez's contributions to the theory of nonviolence. Well, today we're going to take a closer look at Cesar Chavez and the common sense of nonviolence. In what ways has Chavez uniquely contributed to the common sense of nonviolence? Well, in a new book with that title, Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence, our guest this morning, Professor Jose Antonio Orozco, engages the life of Chavez in dialogue with a variety of political theorists and philosophers to demonstrate how the architect of La Casa developed distinct ideas about nonviolent theory. These ideas were not only effective for farm workers, they are also timely for dealing with today's social and political issues. And uh, Jose Antonio Orozco is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. His main interests are in social and political philosophy with an emphasis on democratic theory, American pragmatism, and Latin American thought. He also teaches ethnic studies courses on the history of the Chicano-Chicana Civil Rights Movement. And he is finally the director of the Oregon State University Peace Studies program, and he teaches the Peace Studies Seminar, which focuses on, well, you guessed it, peace. And uh, Professor Orozco joins us this morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Jared. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us bright and early this morning. How are things in Corvallis? Well, it's a little bit uh, cold and cloudy, as you might expect, uh, in uh, fall uh, in Oregon. Well, we could use a little bit of the cold and cloudiness down here. I'm, I'm, I think my shorts are getting uh, wearing <laughs> thin, you know. But it's, uh, it's a day before Halloween, and it's still going to be in the 80s. So go figure. But uh, well, we're glad we could have you this morning on this cold and uh, and cloudy morning in Corvallis. Um, Congratulations on the book. It's uh, it's rel relatively new, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, it's quite uh, it's quite an interesting read, particularly uh, the chapters which uh, we'll get to, where you almost put uh, Cesar Chavez in dialogue with uh, Franz Fanon and uh, Ward Churchill and others. But why don't we begin with uh, providing listeners with an overview of La Casa and uh, at least the the activism of Cesar Chavez, because it seems that uh, even though we have a, a state holiday here for Cesar Chavez, it seems that most Californians and Americans are more familiar with the uh, the activism of you know folks like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi. Well, I, I think that's true, and what's interesting is that uh, you know, I, growing up, I grew up in New Mexico, and um, during my education uh, in uh, elementary school and in high school and so forth, I never heard about Cesar Chavez, and it wasn't actually until I was uh, outside of college and living here in Portland, Oregon, uh, when Cesar Chavez died, that uh, I heard anything about him and started to learn about him, and so uh, my education about him was, was really, really quite limited until uh, uh, I was an adult, and so uh, California is to be commended for being, you know, uh, foremost in this and trying to uh, make sure that young people know a little bit about his life. But uh, you know, Cesar Chavez uh, was a, a key figure, I think, in in social justice movements in the 20th century. He was born in 1927 in Yuma, Arizona, and he came not necessarily from a, a, an totally impoverished background. His family did have some land there; they were small farmers, but. Um, 
because of the the after effects of the Great Depression, his family had to uh, become migrant farm workers, and so his family lost land uh, in that they had in Arizona. Had to become uh, workers that would go back and forth between Arizona, California, and then up and down in California. And so, for most of his life, until he was about 19 years old, Cesar Chavez worked in the fields of California in various kinds of crops, beets, and and and, and so forth. And it, he this really formed his his um, impressions of this kind of labor for some time. He, he recognized that it was honest work, but it was really, really grueling work. It was really, really oppressive work. And so uh, in about, uh, when he was about 19, he decided to try to get out of it as best as he could, and he joined the Army, or I'm sorry, he joined the Navy and, and, and went to uh, World War II. Comes back from the war, and there was not a whole lot of opportunities for young Mexican-American men at that time, and he had, goes, had to go straight back into the fields. Uh, he got married uh, in uh, the middle 40s to Helen uh, Favela, and um, again, both of them, uh, which was the tradition of, Mexican, of a lot of Mexican-American migrant farm workers, went straight to work again in the fields. And uh, he started to realize that his life was going to be doing nothing but field work if, if something didn't happen. And he had seen and he was aware of different labor organizers that would come into the fields. He had seen them trying to agitate people. But what he says in his memoirs is he realizes that people would come, they would agitate the people, tell them that they needed to organize and perhaps have a strike for their rights, and then these people would go away and all the hopes and the dreams that the farm workers had had for a better life would be dashed and people would lose their jobs and nothing would come of it. So he realized that something needed to be done, but he wasn't quite sure what, was it, what it was going to take. Uh, around this time period, uh, this is in the uh, 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 early 50s, he becomes uh, aware of an organization called the Community Service Organi uh, Organization, which was a, a group affiliated with Saul Alinsky's uh, Industrial Areas Foundation. Uh, this is a, a was an organization uh, dedicated to community organizing, getting ordinary people to stand up for themselves and to learn how to struggle and to fight for bettering their communities. And so he meets an organizer by the name of Fred Ross. Uh, who introduces him into the idea of uh, community organizing, of getting people to talk with one another in their homes, uh, gathering their friends together, and learning how to lobby uh, politicians, how to get their representatives to work for them. And so Cesar became very, very interested in this work, and he became very effective at it. And in fact, he became the community representative for the, or the California representative for the community service organization and was going out there and getting uh, Mexican-Americans registered to vote, um, getting them to uh, lobby their representatives and so forth. But even though he was very successful at this and he was finally getting a steady paycheck that did not involve the grueling labor of farm work, he was really dissatisfied with this work because he felt in the back of his mind that this was still not reaching out to farm workers. And even though it was helping many Mexican-Americans to be able to improve their communities, that this wasn't touching the, the most vulnerable populations. <clears throat> and so uh, in about 1962, he leaves the community service organization and says, what I'm going to do is start a union for farm workers. And so he gives up his comfortable paycheck. He takes whatever savings he had, and he decides to go out into the fields to organize. 
using the skills that he had learned from community service organization to uh, get farm workers together. And so 1962 is really the birth of la causa, the cause, the idea of organizing farm workers to be self-sufficient agents, agents for democratic change. And he, along the way, he meets uh, uh, various uh, organizers, people who he would be comrades with uh, for many, many years and starts to build uh, what would eventually become the United Farm Workers. And uh, this becomes a very successful union at the height of it, having several uh, tens of thousands of workers represented in the fields throughout California. Uh, he becomes known for his uh, dedication, uh, his self-sacrifice in the terms of the hunger fast that he would occasion, and, of course, the great... Um, a grape boycott in the late 1960s uh, to uh, cut off uh, the distribution of grapes until farm workers can be protected uh, uh, by having good working conditions, by having uh, good pay, and making sure that uh, pesticides are not used uh, on the crops that would uh, eventually cause uh, cancer to the farm workers. So, in the late 1960s, he just be, uh, he starts to gather strength that really, really. Uh, improves quite a bit of the working conditions of farm workers. And the great victory really uh, comes in the uh, 70s when uh, the farm workers are able to gather so much public support in the United States and around the world that California becomes one of the uh, only states to recognize farm labor as a group that can have collective bargaining rights uh, because under federal law, uh, workers from the early, 19, uh, early 1920s or so, uh, the federal government gives people the right to unionize. But one of the groups that was excluded from collective bargaining rights was agricultural labor, farm labor. And so it was up to states to uh, do this if they wanted to. And California was one of the only ones to uh, um, allow uh, unions of farm workers to represent them. And this was uh, the great victory, I think, of the, of, of the farm workers in California, was to get the UFW recognized, give them bargaining rights, and to establish uh, California state uh, boards to regulate labor and to make sure that workers were protected. So in the 1980s or so, as the country becomes a little bit more conservative, we have Ronald Reagan elected president. Uh, things become much, much more difficult for progressive uh, social causes, and particularly for the farm workers. And so this is a period where you start to see um, the gains made by the farm workers uh, slowly scale back. And this was a very difficult period for Cesar Chavez in terms of trying to make sure that the, uh, the numbers of the union uh, stay up, but also just the difficulties in terms of the, the changing political climate. And finally, uh, in about 1993, he passes away. Uh, as the farm workers are still struggling very uh, uh, much to keep their numbers up, to keep pressure up on politicians, to monitor and to take care of um, the kinds of gains that they had been made. But uh, he leaves this legacy of a very strong union, uh, and particularly I think what's, what's important is this vision of himself as someone who was uh, a labor leader, but also someone who was recognized as standing up for uh, Chicano-Chicano rights, uh, part of the, the Chicano-Chicano civil rights movement. And I think uh, part of what my book is trying to say is that given all of this great labor history, he was also what I call him a community intellectual. He was someone who was thinking about 
the kind of activism that he was engaged in, trying to learn from it, and developing new tactics and strategies for nonviolent action today. And the, the hope that I want to do with the book is to show that he was not just uh, an activist in the sense of out there in the streets and actually organizing, but he was reflecting on this to try to develop theory about the strategies that would be needed for social justice in the United States today. We're speaking with Jose Antonio Orozco. He is the uh, author of Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. Uh, thank you for that overview. It, it, I think it, it really sets the framework for our discussion. One of the things that uh, I think you pointed out early is that uh, Cesar Chavez's experience uh, growing up was not one that was unique to Chicanos Chicanas. He uh, was born in, in Yuma, Arizona, and I think a lot of people f- assume that uh, he was born in Mexico, but he, he was an American mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, experienced the uh, the aftermath of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowls and the coming to California and so forth. So his his narrative uh, isn't unlike that depicted in a lot of uh, the Steinbeck uh, right. books uh, I uh, read earlier this year in Dubious Battle, which looked at, uh, is a work of fiction, but looked at the attempt to uh, organize uh, apple pickers in uh, Northern California. So one of the things that your book raises then is uh, the question about uh, to what extent was Cesar Chavez uh, a labor organizer and to what extent was he uh, a figurehead for uh, uh Chicano rights, and that this was something that perhaps he struggled a little bit with. Um, right. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, this was uh, this was uh, something that um, uh, was a tension in his in his life. He he experienced very very strongly the racism uh, against uh, Mexican uh, Americans in the United States. He tells a story of when he was a, a young man uh, with his brother Richard. They went into a restaurant in California. And I uh, wanted to go inside to have a hamburger, and so they sat at the counter, and the waitress came over to them and told them to get out. That didn't they realize that uh, that they didn't serve Mexicans, and they didn't understand exactly what was going on. And they tried to, you know, say, "Look, we have the money. We just want to have a hamburger." And she told them to uh, get out. Don't you see that we don't serve uh, we don't serve your kind, dumb Mex? And uh, they started laughing at the boys. And Cesar Chavez said that this. This memory really stayed with him throughout his life, this idea of, of them deriding the, the, the young boys. And he says that that, that laughter uh, uh, against his dignity uh, just burned into his, into his skull, into his memory, that, that they were laughing at him as a human being. And so he said that he, he experienced that deep kind of racism, and he knew the racism that existed in the fields uh, that kept different groups of workers uh, separated from one another. He was really conscious, too, he said later on, that he was worried about organizing on the basis of ethnic or racial identity. He was worried about what we might call today um, a kind of identity politics, where the only basis of solidarity would be on race or ethnicity. And so um, he believed that it was important to try to target the most vulnerable populations in society for uh, organizing to try to get these folks, right, uh, Mexican Americans, African Americans, and others, to try to turn them into agents of change uh, uh, by 
teaching them the skills that they might need to uh, represent their own interests and to develop their own strategies of, of social change. But he didn't think that this would, the best strategy about doing that would be on the basis of, of, of ethnicity. And so he was, uh, he was sympathetic with the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, uh, with the Movimiento in general, uh, and was always willing to talk with students and to work with other groups. But he always said, look, the basis of our organizing together has to be much broader than simply the basis that we're Mexican. We have to look at our class. We have to understand how we can build uh, coalitions together uh, with other groups to try to create the biggest kinds of power blocks that we can get. And if we do this simply on the basis of race, we might be divided. And so for him, race was something that was... um, something that had to be acknowledged, that the history of racism and racial oppression had to be accounted for in whatever kind of social justice movement we wanted to create, but that uh, it couldn't limit us in our vision of what we wanted to accomplish with social justice. Well, let's talk about uh, his attempts at accomplishing that. Uh, Your book begins with uh, a discussion of pilgrimage, penitence, and revolution. Uh, how did uh, the idea of penitence uh, shape uh, Chavez's uh, uh, pilgrimage and penitence sh- shape Chavez's uh, shape his path toward creating uh, this this uh, major success with the United Farm Workers? Well, the, the the theme of pilgrimage, penitence, and revolution was the theme of the. Uh, Sacramento March in 1966, in, in, in the spring of 1966, the farm workers decided that part of what they needed to do was to raise their visibility of their struggle. And so what they decided to do was to have a march from Delano, California to Sacramento uh, during Easter week of 1966. And so this is about a 300 or so mile long um, uh, march. And the, the, the manifesto that they issued uh, uh, took on the, the 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 values or the themes of pilgrimage, penitence, and revolution, and so these were ideas that uh, Chavez felt were, in some sense, uh, ingrained or a part of the Mexican and Mexican American experience. And so, what he wanted to do was to show that uh, the struggle, la causa was actually something that came from or emanated from or bubbled up from these deep, these deep kind of cultural foundations in Mexican and Mexican-American culture. So the, the march to Delano, from Delano to Sacramento was to be thought of as a pilgrimage and the kind of religious connotation that might mean. He said that uh, in, in describing the, the march, he said, you know, what we're trying to do here is in some sense recreate the kinds of pilgrimages that you see in Mexico all the time, especially around uh, uh, December 12th, which is dedicated to the Virgin of Guadalupe, where many, many pilgrims come from all around Mexico to the Basilica in Mexico City to honor the Virgin Mary. And so he said, what we are doing here today is in that kind of spirit. We are going to Sacramento to this place of power. And we're going there not to honor it, but to signify our devotion to trying to uh, make social change. And so we're going on this pilgrimage uh, to a site of power. Uh, He said, we do this with the spirit of penitence. And he said, to understand this idea of penitence, you have to understand why pilgrims go uh, on the journeys that they do. It's unusually, in some sense, he said, to... um, uh, suffer. Penitence is about causing oneself suffering. 
Uh, and this is not in the spirit necessarily of pure masochism, right? The pilgrims don't do this in Mexico because they simply want to hurt themselves. But the idea, as I've said, is that there's a realization that by suffering, we gain a certain kind of insight into the human condition uh, that's necessary for social justice work. And he said, if you look to see um, uh, the, the people who engage in these kinds of pilgrimages in Mexico, there's long walks. Sometimes people go miles and miles on their hands and knees until they're, they're bloodied and tired. And the idea is that you are learning to take on pain and by learning to take on this pain you can open up your vision of of what pain means how people are in pain you create a sense of empathy and sympathy about suffering and it raises your awareness of the kind of suffering that you are that you see in the world and this was a, a theme that would really play out in a lot of his social justice work particularly in the ideas of the, the hunger fast well and I think that that's an important point that you raise because today it's it's common to to hear of different activist groups whether it's uh, you know your code pinks or uh, not to single them out they just first ones that come to mind but you, you hear of people engaging in uh, hunger strikes or fasts, and yet often uh, the strike or fast is designed to uh, to coerce the opposition into conceding a point. Right. But as you point out in your book, for Chavez, it was something different. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting thing. He never called what he was doing a hunger strike, right, which implies that it's a strategic move to try to force someone that you're in, uh, in tension with, uh, you want them to change something. So you're threatening them by saying, you know, if you don't do this for us, uh, we're going to go on this hunger strike until uh, we get sick or we die, and then it will be your responsibility uh, since you didn't want to do anything for us. And uh, Chavez, who engaged in three major fasts in his life, said that this was explicitly not what he was doing. In the first fast that he started in 1968 during the Great Boycott, he said, look, I'm engaging in this... Uh, this fast, not because uh, I'm uh, trying to coerce the growers to sign a contract with the union. What I'm doing this is this is more for us. What I'm trying to do here is to show us the importance of sympathy and the importance of empathy uh, with one another. The, the the hunger fast really came from a period in which. Uh, many of the farm workers had been on strike now for almost three or four years uh, without any. Uh, without any pay, without any means of supporting themselves. And many of them were getting frustrated with the fact that the growers were not interested in working with them. And so some of them started to talk about, well, maybe we need to step it up. Maybe we need to change our tactics from nonviolent protests. Maybe we need to burn a few sheds. Maybe we need to engage in some property destruction in order to gain people's attention. And this really rankled uh, Chavez. And he said, no, listen, this is, this is not going to work. We cannot go along this path. And he became so angered about this that he said, look, we have to stop the, the strike at this point. We need to pull back and we need to gain our bearings. And he said, and the way that we're going to focus is I'm going on this fast. I'm going to deprive myself of food, and eventually the fast itself would go for 25 days. And he said, and I want us to reflect in this time period on what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to get out of this strike. Is it simply that we want to win what is it that we're trying to accomplish? And it's by this kind of focusing, he said, by, by depriving ourselves that maybe we can open up our hearts in, in a way to 
the suffering around us and recognize that what we're trying to do is change the conditions that bring suffering to the world. Not simply, we don't simply want to win. We don't simply want to get our way. We want to have a radical change of the conditions under which we live. And we need to step back from what we're doing and the anger that we have uh, and learn to figure out how to channel other sorts of emotions into this. And this was, again, a theme that he would play out in, in other uh, fasts. Uh, for instance, one of the last fasts that he did was um, for uh, the farm workers and having to do with pesticide exposure. And so he, he said uh, during one of the communiques about this, this fast, he said, look, uh, I became ashamed when I realized that the farm workers were dying in so many numbers because of pesticide exposure. I was ashamed with myself, and what I decided to do, he said, was to have a hunger fast. And what I wanted to show the world was that I was suffering because of lack of food, but that this suffering was something that I shared with many farm workers who were suffering from pesticide exposure. And at the end of those 20 or so days that he was um, in fast, he said, what I, I'm going to end my fast now, but I would like to continue the fast. So I want other people to uh, create a chain, he said, a chain of suffering. So what would, uh, what would happen was when he finished, he would pass on the fast to a person who would do it for three days, and then at the end of those three days, someone else would pass it on. And the idea was to keep the fast in some sense continuing, creating this, as he said, the chain of suffering to sort of show uh, and to highlight the fact of the people who were deeply suffering uh, to be able to provide the food for uh, tables in the United States. And so the, the whole idea of the fast was in some sense to highlight suffering, to get people to experience suffering in some small way so that they could open up that kind of sense of empathy about the real suffering that goes on in many, many places, in places that people don't necessarily normally look for it or are aware of. The uh, the title of the book is The Common Sense of Nonviolence. So let's uh, move on to uh, that topic uh, because it, it it is hard to convince people, uh, I think especially today, uh, of the common sense of nonviolence. You, you begin this discussion by uh, bringing up the, the famous essay slash book slash lecture of uh, Ward Churchill, uh, Pacifism as Pathology. I'm sure listeners of this program are familiar with that. We've uh, talked about it and played his, his work uh, numerous times. Um, it seems that today the idea of whether it's property destruction or armed struggle or, or however we want to define it is really the the default response. It's not the nonviolence of uh, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, or... Uh, or Cesar Chavez, and I think that your book does a really good job of trying to engage them in some kind of dialogue uh, by, you know, juxtaposing quotes and so forth. Um, you, you raise uh, the work of Franz Fanon, which I don't know that a lot of our listeners might be familiar with, because that is uh, more from the 60s, but certainly uh, Che Guevara has uh, become some kind of a, a rock star, if you will, mm -hmm. with uh, pickup, you know, on the back of pickup trucks, the uh, silhouettes and so forth. So um, I don't know how to ask you to try to summarize uh, the, the two approaches, but uh, why don't we start, let's start with uh, Franz Fanon, because I think most listeners are already familiar with 
um, Ward Churchill. Tell our listeners briefly the main uh, thesis of Franz Fanon, and I'm pronouncing the last name correct, am I not? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Uh, the book is, is The Wretched of the Earth. It was, uh, I guess, the, the uh, predecessor, if you will, to Ward Churchill's pacifism as pathology. It was really embraced by, uh, by activists in uh, the late 60s and early 70s. So let our listeners know what the thesis is and how Chavez would respond to that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a good point. Uh, I, I, uh, Fanon uh, was um, was in some sense the theorist of the Algerian Revolution in North Africa against French colonial power, and he spent many years working as a, a psychologist uh, in that uh, area, talking with people, uh, the the Algerian freedom fighters, and and working with them. And he decided, in some sense, to become the spokesperson. Um, of their revolution and tried to theorize what they were trying to accomplish. The the main sort of thing that comes out of the wretched of the earth is a description of what the Fanon calls the colonial situation, right? The situation in which you had a European power coming in and imposing its political, economic, and cultural system on on Algeria and trying to transform and maim uh, that uh, culture uh, into the model uh, that France wanted for them, and uh, the Algerians decided. Uh, in this kind of wave of anti-colonial uh, violence that started to uh, uh, spread throughout uh, the world uh, in the late 50s and, and 60s, um, that they wanted liberation from, from France. And what Fanon said was that uh, the violence, uh, the armed struggle of the Algerians was justified, was a good thing. Uh, and in fact, it was a, a kind of self-defense against the original violence of the uh, French state against the Algerians. And so the idea for Fanon is, is roughly this, that um, violence is, for, by oppressed people against their oppressors is justified and in fact is a good thing. Uh, that the experience of violence, that the experience of engaging in uh, revolutionary violence can not only liberate uh, a people from their oppressors, but it can liberate people's consciousness, too, if they're oppressed. That is, that in the act of, of, of working together uh, and, and working in military campaign together, that oppressed people learn to see themselves, as, as Fanon says, as real men, as people who are capable of getting rid of the oppressed consciousness in their heads and learning to see the world through their authentic eyes for the first time, and it's through violence, through the act of actually killing the oppressor, that you can gain this kind of liberated consciousness. And so for many, uh, many third world revolutionaries in the late 50s and 60s, this was uh, a, a, a great insight that, that the violence could be justified and that, in fact, there was a kind of purifying effect that it would have, that it would cleanse you of the, 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 uh, the kind of oppressor that you might have within you. And so this was something that, for instance, that uh, Che Guevara also advocated, the idea that it's through this kind of violence against imperialism and, and, and American dominance in particular that third world people would be able to be free for the first time in a really authentic way and be able to stand up for themselves. And for both of these guys, for Che Guevara and Franz Fanon, it was the experience of violence that would, uh, that would do this. And I think that what I argue... In, in the book is that uh, uh, Ward Churchill is part in some sense of this kind of tradition that he doesn't necessarily say uh, violence is the only means by 
by which oppressed people can accomplish their goals, but it might be something that we should keep on the table because the conditions of injustice, he says, in the United States are so great that we can't rule out that at some point armed struggle might not be the good thing for the United States. And what I argue in the book, contrary to these ideas, is that Cesar Chavez said, look, violence doesn't... Um, doesn't liberate in the way that people think it does. What liberates is the, the sense of organizing, of working together, of cooperating, of learning through struggle with one another how to accomplish things. And so the idea is that um, what liberates is the sense of agency that you get by working together, not necessarily through killing, not necessarily through property destruction, but it's through org being organized together that really um, uh, really liberates. And so for Chavez, he says the, the thing is that we can do this nonviolently, and in the end result, uh, if we accomplish gains through nonviolence, the structures that we create for social justice will be much more secure than if we organize and, and try to attain a peaceful society through violence. Because if we use violence, we create the precedence for the use of violence. And so if we are a revolutionary group and we come to power because of violence, Chavez says, all we've done is we've justified the view that violence is a way of settling conflicts. And he says, what's not to stop another group who disagrees with us from using violence against us? We just create this kind of cycle or this wave of continual violence, uh, and we uh, justify the use of violence as a conflict resolution tactic. He says, it's much better if we can teach people, right, give people this kind of sense of that, that, they're, that they're democratic agents of change themselves, but that we're working using the means of nonviolence to create a nonviolent world. If we have that kind of connection, if we get people organized on that basis, we'll have a much more secure, peaceful, and just society. Yeah, there were a couple of passages that I'm thumbing through now that I really liked, one of which is the uh, you talk about how... Uh, Che Guevara and uh, Franz Fanon, but I think it was mostly Che Guevara, talked about pretty much having to numb oneself yeah. to be prepared for the uh, the guerrilla warfare. And uh, I don't know if it was your commentary, I can't remember, or, or uh, Chavez's commentary, that how could you possibly build uh, a lasting uh, movement of uh, peace and social justice when you have numbed yourself to all other human beings? Uh, and I think that that's a really... Uh, a really great point. Um, he also, uh, there's a quote here where he says he's not concerned about uh, a political revolution. He says we need a cultural revolution. That it's not just about you know changing one figurehead uh, and replacing replacing it with another, but it's changing how we interact with one another. That's that's really key. Yeah. No. I think you know what's 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 interesting about this kind of thesis that violence is purifying is that I, I think it's uh, quite the opposite actually in some ways that. You know, in order to do serious violence, the kinds of revolutionary violence that Che Guevara was talking about or that Franz Fanon was observing in Algeria, is that you really need to psych yourself up to be able to be this kind of brutal killing machine, right? And, you know, let's put, the, the, it's, you know, no small point on this, uh, Che Guevara in some of his writings does say this, is that we need, right, as uh, revolutionary people to learn how to become brutal killing machines against American imperialism. And, uh, you know, I, I've talked with different people who have been involved in revolutionary movements. For instance, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with uh, Mark Rudd, who was part of the Weather Underground, who engaged in uh, armed struggle in the United States. And, 
the, the lesson I've learned from some of these folks is that uh, they paid a very heavy psychological cost in, in trying to learn how to psych themselves up to do this kind of violence, is that you really have to put a lot of your normal sort of reactions and the sense of empathy and sympathy on hold. And uh, what I think that even Fanon recognized by, about some of the Algerian revolutionaries is that they really, they really did damage to their psyches in order to be able to become suicide bombers and to uh, uh, brutally kill other people. And so Chavez's point is that, you know, how can we say that we're trying to work for a society that's built on uh, a secure peace and justice, uh, gives people uh, uh, what they deserve, when the way that we get there is by cutting off a piece of our humanity, by looking at other people as simply means to our own goals. That's a very kind of, that's a very dangerous moral position to be in. And so for him, you know, in order to get to a moral point, in order to get to an ethical society, you can't use immoral means to get there. And this is a, a, a point that he learned from Gandhi and from Martin Luther King. And so, uh, you know, violence might look like it can accomplish things, and it might seem like it's the only way in certain situations. But Chavez said, look, nonviolence takes more work. It's going to require more imagination from us. Uh, and we might not immediately win with these kinds of tactics, but uh, if we're seriously devoted to social justice, nonviolence can be the only way that we get there. Otherwise, uh, we are uh, uh, really damaging ourselves, we're damaging our potential, uh, and we are treating other people in the way that the oppressor treats uh, most of us, and why would we want to become like them? We're running a little bit short on time, so I'm going to ask you the $30,000 question, which is, uh, in what is the key distinction, if there, if there can be one, uh, that distinguishes Cesar Chavez's common sense of nonviolence from that of Gandhi or Martin Luther King? Well, uh, the, I think the, the short answer is this, is that I think that he was very, very attuned to the idea of getting ordinary people to do the work for themselves. How do we get ordinary people organized so that they can develop their own ideas for social changes about what they need for their communities? And so I think that uh, uh, he developed some key ideas that are distinct from Gandhi who, for instance, believed that everything had to be uh, above board, everything had to be totally, completely uh, uh, transparent in a movement. Chavez was much more a believer that, look, sometimes you have to be strategic, sometimes you have to be sneaky, but always, always, always nonviolent. And so uh, he was a, a person who believed that uh, ordinary people uh, can be obstructive sometimes in order to gain social justice. The idea of a strike is something that we should honor, uh, that that kind of union organizing is important. Uh, and against uh, Dr. King, I think he had a lot of sympathy for the, the and, and, and learned a lot from the civil rights movement and in some sense could not have accomplished the kinds of things he did without learning from the civil rights movement. But I think that uh, part of the difference that he had with Dr. King was in recognizing that social justice movements can simply be reactionary to oppression, that they simply can't just be about uh, trying to figure out how to react but they have to be proactive and that we have to have a, an agenda that looks towards the future and really 
learning how to move beyond simple uh, protests and rallies and marches, but trying to turn people into these kinds of agents that can build institutions in their own communities, different kinds of groups and organizations that will sustain people, give people hope, and that will work for them. And if that means turning your back on electoral politics, on big political institutions in order to build your own institutions that will work for you, so much the better. Right? The goal is how do we organize ordinary people to, um, to be uh, agents for themselves and their own interests. And I think that that's really key. I mean, uh, the title, The Common Sense of Nonviolence, I think has a, has a double meaning. One is that if you really just think about it, you could see that uh, you have a quote that, you know, violence is a, a force that once unleashed is not easy to, to contain. And I highlighted that and put asterisks next to it. I really liked that. But um, the other part you point out uh, time and again in your book, uh, Cesar Chavez was someone with an eighth grade education. Right. And this is juxtaposed with uh, Gandhi, who was uh, an attorney, right. and uh, Martin Luther King, of course, who had a PhD in, I believe it was theology. Right. So these are... It's not only common sense that if you think about it, nonviolence is always a way to, to make friends rather than, than build more enemies, but common sense in that it doesn't take uh, a PhD in justice studies or a PhD in philosophy and you don't have to teach in a peace program or things of that nature to figure it out. This is something that anyone from a farm worker to an attorney to, you know, any... Uh, any schmo on the street, I'm not going to say any Joe Plummer on the street, <laughs> any schmo on the street could figure out. No, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, the idea is that, you know, what's key in struggle and, and what's key for social justice is solidarity, learning how to work together in this way. And that that's really hard, right? Solidarity is not something that's easily built up, but that's the key. And I think that part of the reason that uh, maybe Cesar Chavez doesn't get the kind of uh, renown that he has, that he, that he doesn't have, is because uh, it, may, it may be this kind of snobbery against his very humble background, right? He wasn't uh, as educated as some, of, as some of these other people. But his point was exactly that, right, is that, that ordinary people have means and ways of being able to uh, uh, get things done. And particularly for him, you know, what was needed to do is to tap into the Mexican-American culture and to realize that in that culture there are all sorts of lessons about nonviolence and conflict resolution and how to build solidarity with one another. It's just a matter of tapping into those lessons that, for instance, he learned from his mother. He says that his biggest teacher in nonviolence was, was not Gandhi, was not Thoreau, was not Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, I really learned uh, nonviolence and what it means from my mother. Right, and was the way the, that she lived her life. The dichos, is that the word? Yeah, the dichos, the, the sayings, folk sayings in Mexican and Mexican-American culture that uh, sort of impart all this kind of folk wisdom uh, of, of small Mexican and Mexican-American communities. And he said, you know, my mother was the one who taught me what it means to care for other people, what it means to go out and give of yourself uh, to others who are in need. And so he said, those are life lessons that I learned from my community, from within uh, uh, the people that I knew. And it was only later that I read theory about it and I saw oh, all of this makes sense and so for him 
you know, nonviolence was, and, and that kind of solidarity was something that he lived in his ordinary life and saw that there was potential in ordinary people to achieve social justice. So you're absolutely right. You know, this is not, this isn't something that is a, a high theory and only something that you know you can learn in school. But it's a matter of trying to tap into those 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 ways and folk ways that we know about, and learning how to turn them into tools for uh, strategy and for tactics for organizing. And one final question, we might have to have you back on a future date to talk about this uh, this further, but uh, I will confess that as I was reading your book, I'm simultaneously getting through uh, autobiography of La Casa. And oh, yeah. so I find that the two, you know, go go very nicely together. But one of the, the things that, um, there seems to be a lot of things that have been problematized. I mean, he, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what Cesar Chavez's approach was to the Bracero program and uh, whether he he felt that it was stealing jobs from uh, from people here in California and in the states, and uh, the timing of your book is is quite telling because it comes right in the midst of uh, this uh, really triumphant immigrants' rights movement. And uh, I'm curious as to uh, what you think Chavez would make of the immigrants' rights movement. Well, I think he would have uh, been a very big supporter of all of this. What's going on? One thing to say is that. Um, there are a lot of people who look to some of his writings and uh, are trying to uh, uh, villainize the, the immigrant rights movement by saying, look, you know, Cesar Chavez was against uh, undocumented immigration, and so even he thought that this was something that needed to be stopped. And so it's in the same way that Martin Luther King is, is sometimes uh, taken to be uh, a figure uh, by anti-affirmative action forces. Exactly. And I think that this is uh, absolutely uh, a very short and narrow view of what uh, Chavez uh, thought about immigration. He thought immigration was a good thing for the United States because he felt that it might be an occasion to bring different kinds of cultural traditions in the U.S. that could move us towards what I call a culture of peace, trying to draw on those Mexican and Mexican-American folkways that might transform our society towards a new vision of democracy and social justice. But, you know, in terms of immigration policy itself, he was very much against the idea of what we call today guest worker programs, right? the idea that we create a special kind of uh, visa program to allow workers to come to the United States and work for a small time, and then they have to go back. And this was the, the sort of immigration proposal by President Bush uh, a few years ago. He was very much against this idea because what he said is what this does is it creates a servant class of workers for the United States, right? These people come. They have to. They they don't have the opportunity to stay. They don't have an opportunity to citizenship, and then after a few years that we use their labor, they have to go back. His view was that uh, uh, we should try to make sure that the that immigrants who come here have a opportunity to stay. That they don't live in conditions of fear that they're constantly going to be deported, and we should do everything that we can to make sure that whoever comes to the United States has the opportunity to participate in the full social, political, and economic life. And so right now we have immigrants who come who. Stay but they live in fear, right? They're not able to uh, access services. They're not able to get driver's licenses and all these kinds of things. I think Chavez would have been against all of this idea is that we need to figure out how to regulate immigration, make sure that we can um, uh, have people come in here uh, without fear of being, quote-unquote, undocumented or illegal. But at the same time, we should make it clear that when these people come here that they have the opportunity to participate and to enrich the political and economic life of the United States rather than simply be... Uh, 
uh, beasts of burden who we use to pick our food, to clean our homes, to uh, clean our, our, our restaurants, and to prepare uh, uh, meals for us, right, that these people should be also to be voters and to be able to have their voice set and to be able to participate in the cultural life of the communities that they exist in. So he was very much a person who believed that immigration was something that was making America strong, increasing its diversity, and we should do as much as we can to uh, make the lives of these people dignified rather than to uh, uh, villainize them as criminals. Yeah, I think the analogy to uh, affirmative action and Martin Luther King is great. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I would love to have you back to uh, explore uh, the context of uh, of the book uh, a lot uh, further. So I hope I could uh, feel free to call on you again. Uh, the book is titled Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. The author is Jose Antonio Orozco. It is a available at University uh, of New Mexico Press, which is unmpress.com. You could also find it, I'm sure, on Amazon. Uh, Professor Orozco, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jared. I appreciate talking to you. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye now.